Hello everyone and welcome to Artifacts. I'm your host, Mr. Gaines, and today's guest is a talented chef. He is the owner and executive chef of Element 112 here in Sylvania, Ohio. So please, wherever you're listening, help me welcome Chris Nixon. Hi everyone. So I have you on because you know I've had dancers and filmmakers, but I haven't had a chef, and I think Cooking is definitely an art form. Like I can make a mean couscous, but I can't. Like, that's all I can do. Yeah. I, I can make, but I can't cook. So I and I've been to your restaurant, and I'm like, this guy can make. Like, what you do is just amazing. You make it into a science. You make it look so good. It tastes so good. The freshest ingredients. So I wanted to have you on to share your journey. Yeah, it's it's been a wild ride. Yeah. So I'll tell you that. <laughs> so let's get started. What was one of your first earliest memories of cooking Ooh. that maybe sparked something in you? Uh, earliest, earliest one I can point out that I was like, yeah, I got to do this, uh, was simply cooking for my family at a lake house. And that still is something I focus on, but a grill outside, simple reaction. But I think my family is what made it for me. So we, we talk about it all the time. There's a, a definite relation between good food and an emotional center of your brain. And what people don't realize is restaurants are more complicated than that. It's, it's about setting up the emotion. So it's like, is the place really fun to sit in? Is the music right? Are the people like at the right distance across from each other? And then is the food really good? Or is the service really good? All those things. You're just setting up an emotional relationship. And for me, that's something I've been trying to capture for years. How old do you think you were when like, cooking started? 15. And I think from 15 to 18, I cooked a lot, but it was not very good. <laughs> and my family tolerated it, so <laughs> there's that. Do you think anyone can cook naturally, or is it like a trained skill that you have to learn? I think anybody who thinks they're cooking naturally learned it somewhere. Mm-hmm. It is learned. Some people had great parents, or, you know, maybe they just were a part of it. But I definitely think it's a learned behavior, so... I think it's closer to something actually like dance or something where you have repetition and you have to train yourself to follow these techniques and the artistry and it comes later in the combination and composition. Interesting. Oh, this is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be inspired how to cook out. There we go. I, yeah. got, I got recipes for you. Don't worry. Uh, yeah. Okay, so you're like 18. You're like, okay, you're cooking. I read that you went to College of Worcester. Yeah. To study food, food plating. Food plating. So I was a very good athlete. And I was like, I love doing all this food stuff. I know I want to go to culinary school, but I want to take the opportunity and be an athlete for college at least. That was the one school that let me use uh, our independent study project there to do food plating. And I mean, we studied just different ways of communicating to people what they emotions would you know, be reacted out of plating something entirely blue or uh, changing heights or anything like that. And that's how they got me. I was like, cool, I can play and go there. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. So what kind of sports did you do? I was a lacrosse player. I enjoyed it immensely. <laughs> Food plating. That's, I didn't know like the height and the color. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it is a visual. Like you look at a piece of art and look at it. Oh, and there's simple things. Like, I mean, simple things probably the most like painters and stuff. I mean, odds look better than evens. But then... Other things like, you know, the way you orient a parsley leaf on the edge of a salmon or if you like stick it up straight, it, it looks really good. But the person who just lays it flat on the fish, it looks terrible. Normally those are the difference between like some of the crazier, higher rated chefs and 
anyone else. So then you go French Culinary Institute yep. in New York. So how did that come about? Uh, so I was looking for a definite path to New York City. One of the chefs I looked at when I was cooking for my family all the time is Thomas Keller. I mean, he's the single most influential American chef. I think anybody who really wants to be in fine dining knows him. But he had opened Per Se in New York City, and it's a three Michelin-starred, world-renowned restaurant there. And I was like, I am going to figure out how to get in there. So I was looking at culinary schools in New York only, and that one worked out better because uh, it was if you had a bachelor's in something else, you could just use it, and then you had a six-month program, and they put you in a restaurant. So I was like, great, let's do it. What was it about his work that you really liked? It is deceptively simple. So you'll look at a recipe and it'll be uh, like fish and chips. And it's a roasted piece of fish with garlic chips and some puree or something to accent it. And then you go through it and to execute the garlic chip, you basically have to be a rocket scientist. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like shave it to an exact millimeter level, poach it in milk, then fry it later after you've dehydrated it, salt it, and then you have a perfect garlic chip, right? And I think that's, I, it's a style that resonated with me a lot. So I, we do it at the restaurant all the time. Uh, flavors are supposed to be simple. I like it when two flavors max is what most people can experience. So if you get to three or four, it just gets complicated and it becomes one flavor again. So like, I mean, a simple dish for us right now is a nectarine sorbet. The ingredients in the sorbet are nectarine and sugar. We just focus on how we ripen them. That's the technique. It's wild. It blows people's minds. It's hilarious. And I, I mean, I always like that. It's like one to two things, do them really well, and then find a way to make sure they look perfect. And that's so much harder than doing like 10 things and covering everything. And you just end up with a layered dish. Those are, you know, those are pretty and great, but I don't think they're fun to experience. Mm-hmm. So at the Institute, what kind of classes did you take? Uh, oh, it's all French technique, nonstop. So everything from pastry to canapes, catering, service. What distinguishes the, uh, the French cuisine compared to other cuisines? There's obviously like ingredient differences in like culture to culture. And those are all developed out of, you know, history and how things, you know, worked out in agriculture and stuff. I think... French cuisine, what's wild is the techniques or the gestures involved in creating something and the level of refinement they're trying to do and the amount of tools of refinement used. So how well we strain, how often we skim, we, you know, little, little inflections on that, how you emulsify something, how silky is it, how all of these like, uh, I guess like textures of luxury is things we'll talk about. I think that's what kind of takes that cuisine and makes it wild, is just how much refinement's involved. I think if you're doing a refined level of cooking, even if it's Mexican or Thai or anything, you're going to use French technique if you want to make it high-end. So then did you end up getting into Tom's restaurant? I did. I did in a really weird way. So I hadn't even graduated yet, and I ended up at Craft Restaurant. So Chef Will encouraged me to do a demo. I went and did the demo for another chef who loved me and was like, hey, you know, you should come out to dinner. So I end up going to Craft Restaurant for dinner as a recruiting trip to go to Washington, D.C. for that chef. And Colicchio was nice enough to offer me a job because I was talking to that chef 
after debating in my head and I was like I want to stay in the city and then he had been Thomas Keller's sous chef for years so I was like what a great way to move on up and then Top Chef had just come on the scene right Mm -hmm. so I'm like okay the place is really cool great starting spot and I had no illusions I would just walk into per se and like get a job so I was like I gotta do something and this felt like a like a steal right like I had already moved up a level so and eventually that was my key in so, yeah. What was your role there specifically? I started on Garmage and then went right to Fish, uh, eventually moved up to Meats. And you just work through stations and kitchens like that as, you know, jobs open up. But uh, I learned a little bit of everything and then I, I showed up early and I would stay late and then you learn things on the side. Mm-hmm. So you help the pastry chef for a second and things and we had some awesome awesome guys there like Dom would do amazing charcuterie stuff and you'd get to learn from him you know Koji's over on meat station when I'm on fish and he's still a friend the team is super important for their attitude so it's something we talk about first we actually hire by culture first because techniques can be taught skills can be learned through repetition the culture of creativity is something I cannot like yeah, it, it can't come up, right? You can't have a bad egg in there. That's what's huge. I think the best kitchens or like the best restaurants at any time, it's actually just the team and how they bonded. And if the if you don't feel like you can, you know, say what you want to say and almost be vulnerable to someone else, then you're not going to you're not going to admit something about a dish or be honest with yourself about it. And there's too many details in a restaurant for the chef to catch them all. There's 85 components per station element. We just organize them, we make sure they're all there every day, and we try a lot of stuff. But unless that guy speaks up, it's not happening, mm-hmm. or at least how we want it to. So we make sure that's, that's number one. You can't be uh, creative and vulnerable with someone unless you are comfortable, right? Mm-hmm. And then you also want to know that they're on the same mission as you. So then after New York, you find yourself in Michigan. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you were, so talk about that like transition. That was a wild one. <laughs> uh, cooked for my sister's wedding and people loved it and a restaurant happened to be for sale and everybody was like, all right, let's stay. Uh, I, I mean, it was very much so an emotional reaction to food. Probably my first big one I created, yeah. Fun restaurant though. Wacky place. So. What kind of food was it? At that time, it was more like reinterpreted dishes that I had learned from my chefs. I don't think I was doing a lot of things that were original to me yet. It was, yeah, very much so that style. Closer to like contemporary American than French, but French in technique. So, you know, steak, seafood, simple, like uh, essentially a descriptor for most restaurants you'll find, right? I think though it was cool as we were trying and I also think it, I was so immature I didn't realize like when something was a bad idea we shouldn't go for it. <laughs> but that's what made it cool. And there's so many stations at that restaurant because we did fine dining up and then a casual down. Mm-hmm. So you had like nine stations in a kitchen and you're trying to monitor them and you're still at like 60 components a station. And it's... How many stations are usually in a kitchen? Look, it, it depends on the size of the restaurant. At like Element right now, there's four. You know, at Kraft, where I was before, which is a larger restaurant, there were six. I mean, it, it really just depends, but nine is, nine's up there. So then, is it true that you had people who came at that restaurant and they offered you a place to yeah, come back? The, yeah, 
Yeah. Do you remember what you cooked that day to make them? They had a tasting menu. Okay. Uh, yep. So they had like whatever nine to eleven course bonanza we did. I mean, I still do it now. It's just much more refined. <laughs> Progression's more important now too. Before it was like that dish is cool, so it's on, and that dish yep. is cool. <laughs> now it's like, does that one lead to that one? But yeah. And they so they were like, hey, do you want to like? Oh yeah. They asked me mid dinner, which happens a lot, frankly. It's a matter of how serious they are, and. They were dead serious because they followed up. So, okay. it, it does. It happens all the time. Somebody would be like, yeah, you got to go open this restaurant. And you're like, okay, absolutely great, thanks. And yeah, yeah it, it's it's actually just flattering, frankly. It's really nice. Mm -hmm. I'm glad we like... Your food speaks to them yeah. to say, hey, can you come here? Yeah. Sure? yeah, yeah. anything that sparks like uh, that idea where they want to be a part of it or if you spark a food memory for them where they're like, oh my God, this reminds me of... And if you get into that... You've killed it. That's when. That's the most rewarding things I hear. I always think of the movie. I don't know if you've seen it, Ratatouille, that Disney movie. Oh yeah. Where like he makes a Ratatouille, and the, and the critic is like, "This reminds you of you know when I was with my mom. She yeah. made it." And like that is like I think yeah what you oh, said. Oh yeah, it's one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah I love that movie. My kids have seen it like a hundred times. Yes. Yeah. I love it. And you look cuckoo. I love that movie for all that stuff. Yeah, yeah it's so good. And I miss you know, even though it's like a cartoon animation, like oh the cheese and the and the strawberry and the bread, and he's like mixing the flavors. Like this just looks so good. What's funny is we do that at work, and people at, like will react that way. And then if you brought that up, they'd be like, no, 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 come on. <laughs> it's like yeah, yeah. So then okay, I'm at on twelve. Uh huh. So you come back. Did you ever think you're gonna open up a restaurant back where you grew up? No. Honestly, it's been wild. It's gone from like place to place, just sort of happening. Before that really launches, you go to Denmark. Was that? Yeah, that was just a phone call from a friend. So. <laughs> yeah, wait, explain that first before you get to Elvin's Well, because you worked at like, yeah. one of the best restaurants. Yeah, it was. literally. It, it is literally not, yeah, it is yeah. the best restaurant. Which, how, how do they, first of all, how do they determine that it's the best restaurant? I don't restaurant? know. I. <laughs> <laughs> like, who, who claims this is? There, there's a ton of rankings. There's tons of them. Whoever is separating number one from 100, like, come on. <laughs> like, there's no difference. They're all, if you're in the top 200, you're amazing. I think after that, it's almost a popularity contest. Or they're like, I loved Nordic food this year, so it's number one now. And okay. it's like, okay, great for you. Like, I, I don't know. I, yeah, but I mean, at the time, yeah. So I went to Noma. And it's in Copenhagen, Denmark. They were doing the London Olympics as a pop-up. And so they had half their staff there and half a home base, right? And they were looking for tons of people to help. And I happened to have a friend there who was cooking and he was like, yo, come hold my spot. So oh my gosh. Like, yes, sir. So how long were you there for? Uh, what, over a month, so. Oh, wow. So what was Fun, the, fun experience, though. What was their vision as a restaurant like? What did they, what was their focus? Cool. So, and he's changed it recently a little bit, but uh, they were more about serving true Nordic food. And it was wild. I mean, we started the mornings by going in the woods and finding ingredients and we'd bring them back. And I mean, they were serving live shrimp, ants, and uh, you know, beef tartare with sorrel, which is the one that sticks out in my head because it was like eight kilos of sorrel had to be sorted every morning. And a, a one leaf of sorrel does not weigh like anything so to get a ton of it I, I mean I don't even remember the real number but it was like four trash bags and we would go cut it in the woods 
and then sort it by if it was an open one, nice and pretty and open, if it was a little one, or if it was a closed one. And we had like 12 of us doing that. Then we'd start plating the beef sarsari dish later on, and you'd, they, they all had a specific placement, and it was really cool in the end. I mean, it was wild. It was just a ton of work. But yeah, yeah, that restaurant is nuts. I think Renee is probably the most fearless person you'll see in cooking because he does not care. Really? Like, like what, give me an example of one of his dishes or why. Oh, uh, the, so... the one that, like, I tell you, you can tell how, like, Midwest I am because I was like, you're serving a live shrimp. Like, it's alive. Like, when you pick it up, it's alive, right? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, cool. I'll shut up and go over here. <laughs> <laughs> and then you eat it and you're like, oh. So if I remove my social upbringing standards of food thing, yeah, that was really good. And then you're like, okay, so you're just, you just don't care. You're like, whatever. And yeah. it was really good, so it goes, and that, I mean, that was what he was doing. I think that's the hallmark of a Rene Redzepi dish, is he's totally fearless. So what did you take from there and bring it back to Element 12? What were some takeaways that you think? Uh, I think a lot of his plating style is really wild. It's super landscape, uh, really focused and narrow, and it's supposed to just look like, you know, like, I mean, the beef tartare looks like you found it on the forest floor. It's beautiful. You know, how simple something can be is definitely there. I think those were two big ones for me. The other one was, if it's really good, why not? It's even something I run into, the, this happened to me last night. People are obsessed with wild-caught fish. I have not served wild-caught fish in like four years. If we do, it's something that's sustainably harvest and we make sure of it because I want my kids to see fish in the ocean and I'm not gonna be a part of it. Like, But for some reason, I mean, people are obsessed with this idea that wild-caught fish taste better. And I'm sure that's true in some regards but it's also because they've just had terrible farm fish and they don't realize that you could have beautiful farm fish there's people doing amazing things for the world in fish farming right now where they're actually like purifying the Mediterranean Ocean like Vete La Palma farm or you know you've got these guys out of New Zealand doing Ora King salmon that's frankly probably better than any wild caught salmon I've ever had and it's incredible and it's full sustainable and it's great for the environment and you're like okay so why don't we just sell that right like yeah. let's, let's not pillage an ocean and let's leave things alone mm -hmm. i think we've done enough damage so i'm like you know stay out of it person has no regard for it at all and was like no no you don't know what you're doing and i'm like okay are you educated <laughs> like no. you know and it happens but also i think that's something that i picked up from that restaurant is i don't have to care I mean, the mistakes happen. There's so much happening in a restaurant to attempt to make a profit, right? Like, we, we mess up. We're not perfect. Uh, so that does happen, but I don't like it when they judge based on what they've had everywhere else. I think people need to realize how different restaurants are. And like, I'm sorry, you had a bad farm salmon at whatever restaurant probably shouldn't have been serving it. And like, that doesn't mean anything against the Aura King one I've got sitting here. I mean, especially in, in our industry, they also don't realize how important ingredient is. So, like, 
every dish, we will talk about it as a 100% rating. 50% of it is the ingredient and how much effort we put into finding it and then how we took care of it. So great examples like that same salmon. If we fillet a side and then leave that side to dry skin up overnight, the flesh will firm up and then the skin will get ultra crispy later. Whereas if I just served it straight away or put it in a bin and covered it, it's never going to get crispy. Like it won't happen. But that's just storage. That was nothing. I didn't cook anything. I just did storage. And I think people really underestimate how much of their food really comes down to where did the chef buy it? Yeah. yeah. Like where it comes from and how is it? The organs before it's actually cooked. 100%. So talk about element 12. What, what's the significance of the name? The first joke or like idea came from a bunch of elements have to come together to make dinner really good. I, I think chefs are actually just a quarter of it. I'm not handling how the room looks or something like that. That's our front of house staff, right? The systems we use to clean the place, how it looks, how it feels when you're sitting in there, those are different the beverage program, what drinks we have, how we uh, sell them, how knowledgeable our servers are, that's another like area or quadrant of it, right? And then the service that actually comes with it, how they talk to you, how they treat you the whole time, do we make you work for something? Does everything just sort of show up and you're like, whoa, like, you know, that, that attitude? Those are all the things that kind of come together. And that's the elements of dinner for me. but. That name just came out of talking to them about what I believed in cooking. I think one of my concerns early on was they thought, oh, we have a great chef, we're gonna have an awesome restaurant. And I was like, no, no, that, that's cool. You have a good corner, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but you need, you need everything else. It's very much so a team. It's a bunch of parts making something holistically yep. good experience. And that's why I don't believe in naming restaurants after the chef. I think it's a team. And if you ignore that, you're being silly. The funny thing was, though, we used science as a guide, and my cousin at the time was, he's, I mean, he's absolutely brilliant, and he was like, hey, look, if you look at a periodic table, element 112 is your initials, so it's kind of like you're there, but you're not, and I was like, okay, that's pretty good. <laughs> I love that. So, yeah, that's how it worked out. Element yeah, so yeah, Zach Chambers nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Zach. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he knew it sitting there. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he can even convert a recipe in volume off the top of his head. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. We call him for that. Talk about the science aspect when you first started Element Twelve. Because I've been there since, like in the beginning. It was very much like, again, exploring the elements. I remember you had those potato stones yeah. and they came out and they were like smoking. I don't know what that reaction was, yeah. but it was so cool. Yeah. So talk about that first part of the restaurant and how it shifted now. I mean, that stuff's still there. It is. It's more or less like, uh, I mean, you know, COVID changes everything, but I just looked at it as ways of treating things or like trying to give you experiences outside of what you expected. I thought that was always really important. And I didn't realize how easy that was. I think, I like early on, we put tons of effort in trying to make sure you realized it was different. And I later on realized that wasn't that hard. It, so it was like, let's refine that. But uh, yeah, I liked making people eat with their hands. I like, I think that's hilarious in fine dining because they're like, you know, which spoon goes where? And I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> so, and I don't, I, I, I hate the pretentiousness of fine dining. I. I keep eliminating it at every turn. 
I think we should be able to serve wine perfectly without, you know, being snooty about it, I guess. Like, what's wrong with that? Why can't I just talk to you like you're a human being? I used to look at all those different things, like, can we make a dish where air is visible? Can we uh, make stones you pick up out of the ground, right? Those things. Those are all still things I, I still look at. It's a matter of staffing in the world of COVID, but yeah, people don't realize how many people that takes like a lot. I think nature is one of the best inspiring things. So it's one of those places I look for it more and more so now. I look at like French traditions and things. Outlets for inspiration is something I focus on quite a bit. So I'll go to dinner with my wife, travel, uh, we go to the museum, things like that. Uh, a lot of times it's my kids now because they don't care. So they think, you know, they don't know any rules of anything. And seeing what they talk about is fun. I mean, one of the dishes that was my favorite at Element was a, a dish about my wife. And it was actually just more about colors I see in her. So it was like 50 different flowers on a plate over the top of what I can't remember now. But just the color pattern was all I could see was her. And if you like, you know, look back at some of the photos I have of her and stuff and, and then compare them, you're like, wait a second, it's really cool. That's so cool. But yeah, you never know what the deal is. It's like plating styles is different for me than ex like execution styles. So it's, I don't know. Yeah, that's the hard part of chefing. You have to have technique and a recipe first, and then you have to make it look good second. And yeah, those things. So do you start then going on this inspiration track? Is it like, it could be like your wife that inspires you, or is it like an ingredient first? Or do you get inspired by other dishes that you've had that you want to recreate? Like what's all the above? All the above. So I don't fight inspiration. I think you're lucky if you get it. I mean, a lot of people are desperately searching to like create one dish, right? And I try very actively to not. So I will let it happen. And I know that it, life experiences are important. So I'll just make sure I have a lot of them. And out of that, inspiration tends to happen. Uh, I look at it as a routine for creativity. So now for Element on 12, what would you say is like your mission and values now? Out of everything we do, I think it's become themed in Element, where a lot of uh, the chefs I admire and the work I admire, like when I see other people's dishes, are these like old bistro dishes redone. And I think I've used that as a framework. It feels very French in there. That's okay, I like it. Um, and I use that as a framework because I think you need some restrictions to be creative. So like, keeping it French tradition, great. I don't care what I make, uh, but everything's pretty French. And I know my other thing was to try to make sure that people never felt awkward because that was the first few years was a really formal service. and. The amount of people you would see take 20 minutes to relax where they were like, okay, wait, what piece of silverware or like all of these little things, where does the class go? They're worried about having their elbows on the table. And that for me isn't what a great restaurant does. And we talk about it all the time now. The number one statement I'll say is, are we making incredible moments for people? So do they get to come in and have a moment in time where it's about them. So maybe it's important to them to have a first date and they want to get to know someone. Mm -hmm. 
and we create a place for them to have a discussion and like little bits of inspiration to talk about right like that's the food and the drinks and things mm-hmm. or is it you know our first day night out since having a baby and we're want to remember why we had the baby in the first place sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, or is it all about the food tonight and we really want to help them experience that more and talk about it can they meet the chef can they you know see how this was made then sure I think we're my goal is to keep taking away anything that gets in the way of a great moment so if they have to think about silverware I think we screwed up I think it's more like uh, you know coming to a communication level with them where they feel comfortable right away they don't feel like they have to worry about what they're wearing or anything and I think the best reaction is when they're like they sit down smile they have fun talking to their server you can see it on their face right and they're pointing at things on the menu trying to pick something and that's someone who's relaxed and they're happy and it's a great moment in time for them and I think that's what we actually sell. So for Element 112, you use a lot of local... Tons, but most of what we talk about is our ethical ingredients. So if like, uh, say butter, right? Like, we'll buy butter, because if you're gonna bake with it and use pastry ingredients, like it has to be the same every time. And our thing is like, okay, we're buying butter. We buy a live cultured butter out of Vermont that's awesome it's like ridiculous and our thing is if that person was to become the largest butter supplier in the world would the world be a better place and in this situation we're like yeah yeah good for you Uh, that was the butter i grew up on yeah we'd be having a different conversation uh like so that's that's our guiding light i don't actually believe local comes first in my hierarchy because I think there's too many people that take advantage of local as a term and I don't think because you're local I should buy it especially if it's a bad ingredient or maybe you use the wrong kind of fertilizers and you poison something I was huge into local especially when I came to town because I really believe that was better for the world and I don't so I'm probably the only chef that'll say that (laughs) Explain. Yeah, right? (laughs) I do think if you're really looking for ethical ingredients, you'll be surprised how many are local. And they are. Uh, Everything from like actual coffee where we're getting beautiful fair trade coffee for the restaurant that's great, to Shared Legacy Farm where Kurt and Corinna run one of the best farms I've ever seen. Their stuff beats the stuff I had in New York City when you'd go to the, you know, farmer market there. And those are local suppliers, right? But we use them because of the ethics. They're amazing. It's not anything else. I mean, there, there are 50 local farmers. I end up using about two <laughs> because I just don't like a lot of the other ones or their products are subpar. I don't think the world is a better place if they were the biggest. That's my general question I ask myself. Yeah, I think local got way too popular and people didn't think past it. Local started out of, I think, a good ethical idea. I think it just got manipulated into a giant thing and now you go like to GFS and they'll be like check out these local products and it's like five things that are junk on a shelf right and you're like okay why would I buy that because it's local that's terrible don't don't do that (laughs) don't do that no sort through your stuff can you talk about one of your because I I just noticed that you have a new menu of articulated dishes what was what do you what's your favorite from that menu so far oh uh 
I think the what the Sam and Riettes were really fun. So it's uh, just a chilled preparation of salmon. And it's a great way to use byproducts. So like the salmon bellies you normally take off when you want perfect little fillet portions. And we wanted to use those. It seems like, again, you go back to ingredient ethics and it's also about using all of it. Because, you know, if you're throwing out, I don't know, 10 to 15% of all this beautiful salmon that shows up, you're kind of just silly, right? Like we don't need to fill the landfill with salmon, let's eat it. So we've found just a simple recipe from Eric Repair who's a great chef we admire and we were like okay can we adapt this and make it ours and uh, very rarely in our R&D does it work out on like the second try and that one was shockingly good on the second try and so we were like okay I think that's really fun for me yeah how many times you have to like work on a dish for it to get right sometimes it's two uh I mean we have a what we have a a crepe dish with chicken. We, so somehow we combined coca van with chick, uh, with crepes. I don't know how that worked out. It was an idea from the guy who runs the meat station. That thing is like, I don't know, 25 trials in. But I mean, we do have steps and like things I think about. So like, is the recipe really executed well with low variable? Do we know the key variables? So in a salmon react, we have to poach uh, the salmon that's been cubed up and we poach it gently in Chablis, uh, it's like a white wine and that's a variable where it takes technique and focus for the cook to do it right and I like to know how many variables are in a dish so we know where we could go wrong and then we know how to get better. If you don't know those variables you don't know where that can happen. The hardest part is that a bunch of things that are good independently do not always compose well. So if you have, uh, I don't know, let's see, like our filet right now is a classic pairing. It's based off Philly cheesesteak, frankly. Sweet peppers, onions, and in our case, a blue cheese sauce that's Roquefort from France. And it's just an adjusted Philly cheesesteak. It's really good. But the ratio of those actually changed it. So if there was too much pepper and onion, it wasn't savory enough to like come together well. But the peppers were beautiful, and the onions were really good. And like all separate, all those things are really good, but however many we put on the plate changed it from good to like okay. Mm. And you have to realize that. I think that's the hardest part. What makes food art? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's really funny. So. I worked at Kraft, right? Which is literally about the craft of cooking. And he would tell you food is not art. It is a craft that's learned from repetition and skill. I do believe executing food is that. I think making uh, an aioli or a mayo is a craft. You have to learn how to properly execute that over and over again. I also think you have to know it so well you can mess with it. That's when I think it becomes art. The second you can take rules and break them and do it elegantly and well, now we're talking. And that's when you see individual style and you see someone kind of put self-expression into it. Then now we're talking, that's art. And I also think when someone's inspiration comes from themselves. So I don't think, like we do dishes, I don't think our art, they happen. And I mean, that's perfectly cool. Sometimes they're delving into history or something, but they're not art because they're not me. 
or in this case, I'd say whoever was on the station, I hope it's theirs. Uh, other dishes are. And I mean, like, uh, we have a, a, what, a beef tartare right now. Creating the beef tartare is totally uh, just a craft, right? Like, it's, it's a practiced approach to how we treat something, marinating it, tasting and adjusting that for salt. The top part, though, that's a little different because it's tiger stripes of piquillo peppers and onions right now. And we have this conversation like every day. If you lay them down carelessly or just to lay them down, it comes off as meh. It's like pretty and you're like, cool. But if you take your time to organize them and make sure the spacing is right and the angles are right and like the onions always start on the one side and the peppers always start on the other side, all of a sudden the spacing is noticeable and it when you look down at the plate it takes over and your eyeball instantly sees it and that's cool that's some art that's cool <laughs> there's just so much that goes into this that i didn't know i don't realize there's yeah. someone on the other end eating it yeah, right <laughs> instead of creating it yeah so no and that one comes from uh, my two-year-old who loves the cheetah at the zoo and for some reason that stuck out of my head and for some reason that is now a beef tartare. But unless you're being true to yourself and like putting that out on the plate, it's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you gotta have that. Well, I think it's time for rapid fire questions. This is always my favorite part. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Latest food trend that you're into trying out right now? Uh, plant-based. I, I don't think anyone should ever go full into something because of something they believe about something. So if you think like vegan is better because, you know, meats are raised poorly, I think you're doing a disservice to all the guys that do it properly. And I don't like when people frame things in, in entirety, right? Like they're like, oh, all meats are bad because I saw one bad chicken guy. No, that's not true at all. There are some people that do amazing things. But I do think if you look at climate change and some of the math based on that stuff, yeah, you'd be like, yeah, just eating a touch less or like maybe just eat a meat outside of beef occasionally. Like, (laughs) yeah, it would be good for the world. And I think people are missing so much because they just like super habitual eating, right? Like you can have something other than a burger. Shoot, I sell a burger, and I would tell you that's something other than a burger. Yeah. Yeah, I don't even make a big deal about it. Like, I, we do a vegan dessert every day, and I don't mention on the menu it's vegan. Like, I don't care. I, you know, if you come in and you're vegan, we'll absolutely narrow it down for you and help you out. But I also don't want the people that aren't vegan to steer away from it because it is vegan. Yeah, exactly. Like, I hope they incorporate that in their life a little bit. That's okay. Um, food trend that you wish would go away. I don't know if this counts. People saying they have allergies when they don't. (laughs) So that has to stop. If you come into our restaurant, you say you have an allergy, we will remove everything from that station for you. We will set it up ahead of time. We'll do it in the morning and make sure that that ingredient isn't on a station you use. And then they're like, oh, no, no, I just don't like garlic cooked. And it's like, what the heck? Don't tell us you can't eat it because we take that seriously. And like, yeah, don't do that to me. But yeah, anyway, that happens way too much now. Way, way too much. Or the person who absolutely can't have gluten and then the uh, 
pan perdue, which is essentially fancy French toast, goes out, and they're like, wait a second. And then they eat, like, half of it, and you're like, are you not really gluten-free? And they're like, oh, no, no, I just try to avoid it. Well, then just avoid it. Come on. Yeah, no. yeah. Anyway. anyway. <laughs> yeah, I get you. Oh, uh, yeah. A little bit of a hot button for me. Go ahead, though. <laughs> um, favorite guilty pleasure? Oh, Oreos. Really? Hell yeah. Uh, you have to have two of them, and they have to be soaked in milk. That's the trick. It has to be two at once, though. Oh, do you already double stuffed? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> um, hardest ingredient to work with? Oh, wow. At the moment, chicken liver. What does that taste like? <laughs> well, like crap so far. Uh, that's the thing. We, we're on this sort of crusade to make sure that we're using more of everything. And we wanted to create a really cool chicken liver dish where, it, like, even if it was just incorporated and we were using something people normally threw out, great. But we still believe it has to be really good. That thing has been in development for like six months. We have never served it. It has been a disaster every time. Do you have any cooking rituals? Yeah. Uh, I love to have everything set up before I start. Uh, that would be my big cooking ritual. Mise en place is everything. So having all your stuff diced, all nice, measured out, and then you cook, great, because you can be active and a part of it. It's the person who's like sauteing onions and then they go to chop the carrots or whatever. Well, you're no longer in charge of the timeline on the onions or being a part of when they're proper. So, and that's not cooking, that's just luck. I don't like that. So, yeah, being done ahead. Yeah. Describe your cooking style in three words or less. Uh, three words? Whimsical. Uh, I would hope whimsical, delicious. And evolving. Mm, I like this. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. There you go. That was a hard one. <laughs> what is a kitchen tool that you can't live without? Pack a jet. What is that? The fanciest blender on the planet. Really? <laughs> is uh, it like a handheld or is it? No, it's it's like a little machine, but it vacuum packs the item while it uh, blends it, and it makes everything perfectly smooth, like incredibly noticeably smooth and it's one of the only ways to capture that texture and I yeah I would lose my mind without that thing <laughs> what four ingredients are necessary in your kitchen oh incredible butter absolutely hands down uh, really good lemons I don't know why I've become obsessed with citrus as a seasoning agent uh, a lot of times you'll not know it's there, but lemon juice and the pH value of it is beautiful. And a few drops of it will understatedly elevate something. I love it. A very high quality creme fraiche. Like, I'm so obsessed with sour cream, I make my own. Oh, and really, uh, I'd say, like, a really good olive oil. Yeah, you have to have something exceptional there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you could prepare a dish for anyone, who would it be and what would you make? <laughs> Take your time. If I could simply just prepare one dish for anyone, uh, one that jumps right out to me, uh, so when my wife was not my wife, she was just a customer at the restaurant at one point, she made a joke that she really just wanted some blueberries and whipped cream for a dessert, and I was like, 
really cute girl in the dining room wants blueberries and whipped cream. Okay. We'll make it happen. Yeah. I would 100% do that for, like, absolutely do that again for her. You got it. Perfect. Close Sunday, Monday. Um, and yeah, and then you can follow Element 112 uh, for menu updates and yummy food pictures at uh, Element 112 Restaurant on Instagram. And you can follow um, you, Chris, on Instagram at Chef Chris Nixon on Instagram. You got it. Well, thanks again. This is just so, so insightful and just I'm going to cook and try. <laughs> right. <laughs> come to your restaurant again. I'm sure I'll be there soon. Love <laughs> to it. Try the new stuff because I'm excited. But. So thanks everyone else for listening and stay tuned for another episode next time.